Welcome to the 417th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today is February 17th, 2022, and I welcome Kristen Briney, author of Crafting a COVID Visualization, How I Processed Pandemic Anxiety and Grief with Yarn. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID calls live on weekdays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Today is a special COVID calls at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch, and you can also watch on Twitter by following at US of Disaster. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of February 17, 2022, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, in the United States, there have been 930,247 deaths from COVID-19. And globally, 5,859,585 people have lost their lives to COVID-19. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I want to continue that reading now. The headline is Jenny Crane, beloved artist and curator, has died of COVID-19. This appeared on hyperallergic.com. It was written by Valentina Delicia and appeared December 21st, 2021. Artist and curator Jenny Crane died Thursday, December 16th at the age of 30. The cause was sudden complications related to COVID-19, according to Gordon Robichaux Gallery. Crane built an illustrious career in the arts, dedicating laudable efforts to foregrounding the legacies of women artists under-recognized in art history. She earned an MA in curatorial studies from CCS Bard in Annandale on Hudson, where she recreated feminist author and artist Kate Millett's 1972 installation, Terminal Piece, as part of her thesis exhibition this year. Her personal artistic practice encompassed evocative minimal sculptures that plumbed themes of memory and space. Jenny's commitment to and interest in fellow artists encompassed their entire human experience, says a statement from Gordon Robichaux, where Crane worked as a dealer and exhibition curator. The gallery also represents Crane, presenting the first exhibition of her work in 2018, which was a two-person show with collaborator Miles Houston. She formed immeasurable lifelong bonds with those she worked and collaborated with, and touched all who knew her with radiant joy, generosity, kindness, intelligence, nurturing spirit, and boundless energy, the statement continued from the gallery. In 2014, at the age of 23, Crane co-founded Topless, a seasonal exhibition space in Rockaway Beach, along with Brent Birnbaum. From 2016 to 2019, she worked as a director at the Tribeca Gallery Kaufman Repetto. She joined Miguel Abreu Gallery on the Lower East Side as a director earlier this year, last year, 2021. Crane was born in 1991 in New York City. It's unclear whether she had pre-existing medical conditions or how she contracted the virus. She had recently returned from Art Basel, Miami Beach, which did not mandate proof of vaccination, but allowed those who provided proof of a negative COVID-19 test to enter the fair. There have been mostly anecdotal reports of a surge in infections that followed the Miami Art Week. Two exhibitions of Crane's work will open in New York in 2022, Moments Spared, a site-specific gallery installation for the window of Carrie Schuss Gallery, which was open in January, and Fleeting, a solo exhibition of the artist sculptures at Gordon Robichaux in May of 2022. Lauren Cornell, the director of the graduate program at CCS Bard and Crane's thesis advisor, said that she was an absolute inspiration to her fellow students and always a generous peer and friend. We are heartbroken and yet also feel so fortunate to have known her closely, Cornell told Hyperallergic. She was the kind of person that pushes our field forward. She was a sharp and inventive thinker, a generous and tireless organizer, friend and advocate for artists, and a person with a true passion for art and narratives that are undersung. She was truly special, and this loss of promise and potential is immeasurable. 
It's obituary of Jenny Crane, who died in December of 2021, COVID-19. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today. Let me introduce my guest, Kristen Briney. Kristen Briney, PhD, MLS, is the Biology and Biological Engineering Librarian at the California Institute of Technology. She's also the author of the books, Data Management for Researchers, and the forthcoming volume, Managing Data for Patron Privacy. She's an advocate for reproducible and open science and likes to spend her free time making data visualizations out of yarn, and Fiber, Kristen Briney, welcome to COVID Calls. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I'd like to start the way I generally do, find out where you're calling from, what the pandemic situation is looking like there right now. Yeah, so I'm currently at Caltech. I'm in Pasadena, California. And uh, I would say that the situation, I'm going to talk generally about LA County because it's kind of a big unit. Uh, it's getting better. Uh, January was rather rough like the rest of the country. I think L.A. County topped out at over 40,000 cases a day, just L.A. County. Uh, it was quite a large surge, and we're down to just over 3,000 cases a day. So we've come a long way. Um, they're starting to ease some of the, the COVID, you know, not say restrictions, but protections. The uh, statewide mask mandate went away a couple days ago. The L.A. County still has a mask mandate, but they eased it a little bit to allow that people could have um, for like outdoor mega events that you don't have to be masked outside anymore. So I think things are getting better, but I'm still not ready to just throw all caution to the wind and go out. And, and yeah, I'm still wearing my mask everywhere I go and trying to be safe. It's, it's hard to talk. I mean, pointing to that Omicron surge, phenomenally high. Um, and then have it come back down. I was talking to physician Peter Chin Hong, who's in San Francisco. Um, and he was talking about this, this caution that we've all developed now, and maybe wouldn't have had so much caution in May of 2021. But after Delta and now Omicron, there's a hesitation there, right? Yeah. And I think, uh, well, so like statistically, uh, the other thing I want to point out is like the LA Times a couple of weeks ago said one in five Californians had gotten Omicron in this last wave. It was just absolutely huge numbers. I think the hard thing for me is, is that my COVID risk, I'm very like, I want to be very cautious and very safe. And I don't always agree with the same COVID risk as like my husband. He's like, we should go do stuff. I want to get out of the house. I'm trapped. And my kids want to go have play dates. And it's, really challenging because we all have our own different risks that we're trying to navigate and what's safe, what's not, and the situation's always changing and the requirements are always changing. It's it's quite difficult to navigate. I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing a personal memory of this this time. We're going to talk about your textiles and your research also, but I'd like to just kind of start by talking about your life in this time. Yeah. I mean, I would say that the last couple of years have been really hard and it's been these kind of ups and downs and time has shortened and lengthened. And I think for me, I'm a science librarian, so I like to follow the scientific information. So I, I was thinking about a memory that kind of reflects how I think about the pandemic and that is going to Legoland over last summer. It was right before Delta hit. So things were calmer. My in-laws were actually able to visit from the Midwest. It was great. We took the kids to Legoland there. At the time, they were five and two, so a good age for Legoland. And it was nice to be able to get out and do things. But we happened to be there for two days. And on the first day, the mask mandate was in effect. And the second day, the mask mandate was lifted. And, you know, the first day, you had the usual amount of noses hanging out. That was to be expected. And the second day, there was, like, not a mask to be seen. And, you know me who knows been following this knows like oh you're supposed to be if you're not vaccinated you have to wear a mask but none of the children were wearing masks because none of the children could be vaccinated at the time right. um the other thing that got me about this is my daughter was two and she really wanted to ride the carousel and so we we basically go in the carousel and get right back in line and we'd be just packed in these lines you have the little dots that nobody pays attention to on the ground and we were packed in line waiting to go in the carousel and they stopped and the attendant 
proceeded to wipe down every single carousel horse, the seat, the pole, everything, and take 20 minutes to wipe down the entire carousel. I mean, they were wiping down Legos at this point, Legoland. And I'm thinking the whole time, like, I'm really close to somebody I don't know. People are sort of wearing masks, sort of not. And they have, everybody has the wrong mental model for how COVID works. Even like in the middle of last summer, we didn't understand that COVID was airborne. It was completely frustrating. So it was like one of these, like, oh, just follow the science. I'm having fun, but I'm also not because science. (laughs) I can totally picture that. And I don't mean to cast any aspersions on the poor individual whose job it was to wipe down the carousel, but that kind of hygiene theater uh, you know, in the face of mounting evidence mm-hmm. about aerosolization, um, it's really hard to to witness, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's been a lot of the like, cause of like my anxiety and frustration is just being able to sure. see what the scientific evidence is and how far we are from actually following it. So I want to follow up about your your work. So you're uh, a science librarian mm-hmm. and, and a researcher and author as well. You've written data management for researchers and this new book, Managing mm-hmm. Data for Patron Privacy. So um, maybe talk a little bit about your sort of philosophy of open science and what that means these days um, with so much scientific information at the ready for those who have access to it. And then I want to follow up and talk a little bit about what the pandemic has done to that. Yeah, Ooh, that's a big topic because I do work in this area. And so part of this is my goal as a science librarian to provide accurate information to the researchers on campus. But I also know how much we pay for that. It's hundreds of thousands of dollars and even upwards of millions of dollars at one institution. And I mean, how much do you really want me to go into how much <laughs> scholarly publishing is broken? <laughs> it's broken. Well, you, you, yeah, I mean, you said right there just talking about the price point. That's that's one issue. So when we talk about open science, it, 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 it means open for institutions that can afford it. I mean, is that sort of yes. the, the um, subhead? That's historically what it's been. So there's a big equity issue of those who can and cannot afford to access research. And even those who have a lot of money, I mean, Caltech is one of them. Um, we can't afford to get everything that we want to get access to. And so I think there's a reckon, uh, people recognize that there's a problem. And so there's new modes that we are moving into. And this is the open science modality where a lot of funding agencies and even publishers are starting to say, well, it's not equitable that somebody has to pay $40 to access a single article or has to pay $1,000, $10,000 or $50,000 to subscribe to the journal as a library. Um, So people can publish, sometimes it's a whole journal, it published open access, or sometimes it's on article by article basis. But even this is not always equitable because publishers see it as an avenue to get money so I think the latest Nature numbers are something like $11,000 to publish a single article in Nature and have it be free for anybody to read. It's a lot of money. Um, so we have this kind of broken system and people are trying to uh, address it. And so one of the goals as a librarian is trying to help people navigate <laughs> this and trying to advocate uh, for more open uh, methods of disseminating research while also respecting copyright. Uh, and uh, it's kind of an exciting time to be working because we are starting to open it up, but still it's not, we're not where we should be in terms of having open access to information. I, I have a lot of questions I want to follow up. One is that um, the early in the pandemic, um, major news organizations, but also um, journals like Nature, um, they moved some old content as well as new content into the open access category, right? Yes, they did. Well, and some of, those it, some of those, it was only temporary. Um, I know one of the things we had a huge struggle with early on in the pandemic was getting access to people for textbooks because textbooks are hundreds of dollars. And if you have multiple classes, it's multiple hundreds of dollars. So publishers were like, oh, here, just have access to this textbook for six months. And it wasn't enough. So I really am grateful that um, publishers have recognized that a lot of the COVID research is important enough that it needs to just be made open access. But that's basically a Band-Aid on the problem and not actually addressing the underlying issues of how we're publishing uh, our research. And research is really vital. Uh, A lot of medical research in particular that really needs to be in the hands of people who (laughs) need access to quality medical information. And what have you thought about um, the pace of medical 
um, and any kind of research related to the pandemic, you know, the preprints coming out and then finding their way into rapid circulation. There's a, an argument I've heard um, for, for slowness and lack of access. It's not an argument that, that maybe resonates with you, but I, I heard it talked about, you know, particularly in middle of 2020 and people saying, you know, it would be better actually if fewer people were reading this and talking about it because it's complicated and journalists publish stuff before they, they know how much it's been peer reviewed. These preprints are different from peer. It's, it's complicated, right? <laughs> we are bad at complicated. I think that's yeah. one of the, the challenge. I, I, for one, I'm really glad that uh, we put a lot of COVID research out as preprints, making it available before it goes through the whole peer review process. Because even with uh, publishers somewhat expediting that process with COVID research, it can still take a long time to publish. And so I'm really grateful that that information is being made available to other researchers and other people trying to access the latest information. I think this is part of what I do as a librarian is this information literacy idea where we have to have people understand what the different sources mean. And, you know, is it authoritative? Just, it may not even be authoritative if it's gone through peer review, but at least somebody's vetted it. I mean, the the arsenic life in uh, the science uh, paper from years ago, just like this was just terrible research and yet it was published in science. So there's always a grain of salt with whatever you have to evaluate. But I still think in the era of where we need to develop scientific knowledge very quickly, having preprints is really good, particularly for the scientific community to come to a consensus faster. Talking to Kristen Briney today on COVID calls, and I wanted to also ask you about this book that you've got coming out, Managing Data for Patron Privacy. So what's this about? So um, I am a science librarian, but I also specialize in how to manage data. And this is because a long time ago, I was a chemistry researcher and I did terrible things <laughs> with my data. So uh, my first book was about uh, how to manage scientific data. And then I was starting to read a lot of the literature coming out of uh, librarianship. And I said, whoa, whoa, <laughs> uh, we have a problem too. So that's what the second book addresses. And I was fortunate, I had, I thought, oh, this is gonna be a great pandemic project, little did I know. Um, so I was fortunate to have a co-author co in Becky Yost. Uh, and we kind of tackled this idea of, how do we responsibly handle sensitive information within libraries um, and respectfully and make sure that we're not violating people's privacy and how we're handling it and protecting data from data breaches and creating relationships with our vendors who provide access to information, making sure they're not misusing data. So it's, uh, I have a lot of uh, interest in making sure people are handling data properly. And so uh, my latest book is how to do that in librarianship. So, and, and is that, you know, addressing the problem that, you know, users actually that there's tracking that goes on in terms of the articles they download, how long they spend with a certain website, keyword searches they do, is that data that's all then becomes metadata for, for the publishers, maybe even for the libraries? I'm not sure. Yeah, so there there's kind of a, a some of the data we see and some of the data the publishers see. And so some of it's important for us to keep track of. So one of the things we do when we provide access to information is we require people to authenticate because we can't just provide information to everybody because publishers won't like that. And we pay a lot of money for this information. So we have a server that basically authenticates everybody. But that means we can see like you're accessing science and even down to you're accessing this article in science and here's your username. So we have to manage that data responsibly and make sure that we don't hold on to it forever. We delete it and uh, we are you know, very careful in who actually accesses that data. Vendors uh, are becoming very much like an Amazon. Uh, where they're following your every click and they're tracking what you do. So th that, there's a whole separate thing about how the information companies are really starting to mine data on people who are reading content. Um, and so one of our roles as a library is as mediator to make sure that when we engage in a relationship and a contract with those vendors, that we place limitations on what those companies can do with that data and what users are allowed to do. So thankfully, um, I'm in California, we actually have a, a fairly decent uh, privacy law, CCPA, I can't remember what all the acronyms stand for, but it's the California Consumer Privacy Act, I don't know. 
CCPA. Um, so people in California, just like GDPR in Europe, have some rights and can tell vendors, no, you need to delete my information. I need to be able to see what information you have on me. I want to be able to correct this information. So uh, we're part of this information landscape and we act to protect the interests of our users because people should be able to consult what they want without somebody looking over their shoulder and trying to make money off of it or judging them or, you know, uh, surveilling them. Let me ask you um, a broader question about libraries in, in their communities. And um, I ask this because, you know, throughout the pandemic, but particularly in 2020, there was um, rightfully an important discourse about the, um, the ways, how universities should reopen. And of course, that reopening discourse was a little premature in the summer of 2020, although some universities did. One of the points that really impressed me was the responsibility that universities have when they're in urban areas. And um, so that a university campus is part of a broader community. And um, that's a value that I hold. Uh, not everyone agrees with that. Some people think universities are islands in their community, but I, I, I don't agree with that. And I think we really saw that with the pandemic, that we really had to, to think about um, the campus as a place that has lots of people who are not just the students. So just, I just wanted to state that first, but libraries are, are often a crucial point in that because libraries are often open. I don't know if Caltech is. We are not. <laughs> well, it's not open to the public. No, we are not. Yeah, we are oh. a private institution. So we, we uh, particularly during the pandemic, we've really strictly limited who can access the library for safety reasons. We've even limited how many students can be in the library studying it at the same time. Um, but I do agree with you. I used to work for the University of Wisconsin system and they were state institutions. And so anybody could come into the library and access a computer. And I think that was actually really important for members of the public to be able to access information that they might otherwise not be able to afford. And universities have access to special resources that a public library is just not going to have. So I think I agree with you that it's important that the public be able to access this information. Um, but I don't necessarily agree that it's every library's responsibility to do that. But I think that there are certain universities that have a mandate to be part of the public ec ecosystem. Um, and I think that that can be a very difficult thing to navigate during the pandemic because a lot of, I mean, a lot of the reasons that we've been so forceful about who our library is for and who our library isn't for is just down to safety. Right. Right. So, I mean, I think and it's, it's, it's a complicated set of concerns and it taps into this sort of, you know, broader issue around open, open access. Mm -hmm. and, and what is it, what are institutions that create knowledge? What's their responsibility to the broader public at this time, particularly in the space of science? Yep. Yep. That's a, that's a big question. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> like I can like, uh, tackle some of the literature parts of it, but that's a, that's a bigger question on the university is how they're being responsible members of the community. Yeah. So I'll just, let me just remind folks you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to a librarian and textile artist, Kristen Briney today. And I want to now shift over and talk a little bit about um, some of what you've been doing when you're not working um, as a as a science librarian during the pandemic. And I want to just um, quote a bit from an article you wrote called Crafting a COVID Visualization, How I Processed Pandemic Anxiety and Grief with Yarn. Um, and this is a great piece. I'm going to put up a link to it. And you talk in, in the piece about um, your response. I'm just going to quote here the, the lead. You say, in response to my frustration, I turned to crafting and visualization. And just talk about how others have written of the power of data visualization as grief and the therapeutic effects of knitting. And you talk about how you personally experienced the benefits of knitting on mental health. I'd like to hear about all of this. Um, so let's let's just start actually with how you first began knitting. Um. Yeah, I was thinking about this earlier, and <laughs> I've come to reflect during the pandemic in particular that I knit a lot during times of high stress and anxiety. And I actually learned how to knit right after September 11th, 2001. And so society was really in a large upheaval. And I don't know why, but I just picked knitting and I've stuck with it. And so 
one of the things that uh, I, I'm part of this online knitting community, which is Ravelry, which is probably very familiar to anybody who knits and crochets and is listening uh, to this podcast. And you can actually track how much you knit and how many projects you make. And my project uh, count was very high when I was in grad school, and then it went down again. And then it went way back up again at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, just because I have this need to... Uh, you actually said that it's actually separate from my work, but I've been on Zoom so much that if I didn't knit, I, I don't know what I would do because I cannot be on Zoom seven hours a day and not do something with my hands. So I'm like in a meeting and down below where you can't see, I'm just quietly knitting away and listening because I, I just have to do something. Um, so it's really the story of how I started knitting and why I keep knitting and kind of in these waves is really tied to a lot of my feelings. I realize, like, yeah, it's fun and I like it, but I really knit when I'm stressed. <laughs> is that a kind of a common origin story for people who find their way into textile arts or knitting generally as a, a sort of mental health or stress reliever? Um, I think it varies from person to person. I know that a lot there's some people who always say like knitting is great. It will solve your anxiety problems or your mental health problems. And I don't necessarily agree with that, but I think that there is definitely a space for knitting, particularly in somewhat simple projects and somewhat repetitive designs where it becomes mechanical and rote and you just kind of get in this state where it's you're kind of doing something physical, but it doesn't necessarily take a lot of mental thought and it's just, just soothing. And you make something at the end. So you actually have something to show for it. I want to, I've been asking guests the last couple of weeks what they think about the COVID numbers. And I really was eager to ask you about this because um, your data visualization through textiles is, is all about the numbers. But And before we talk about how you actually visualize that, can you talk a little bit about your, your, the way that you have interacted with the data, the, the COVID data, the case data, and the, and the death rates? Like, what did you rely on early in the pandemic um, to make sense of it? Um, how do you feel about those numbers now? I've been asking everybody from physicians um, to, your, to yourself what they, how they feel about the, the reliability, I guess, is the word I want to use, although reliability is a, is a tricky word because something that's reliable to one group is not as reliable to others. So, I, I guess I, it's not a very well-formed question, but I sort of wonder how you interact with the COVID data. Yeah, um, I've been a big follower of the data this whole time. I mean, I'm a data nerd, so I like show me the numbers I want to see. And so I've been really um, happy to be able to, a lot of news organizations in particular have plotted a bunch of really nice numbers like by country. So you can see, you know, if, if the UK or Italy is spiking now and here's their trajectory, what's the US going to be like? What can we learn from them? Where are we in our trajectory? And I think that for me, it's actually reassuring to know where we're at so I can reflect and how, how cautious do I need to be because what are the local numbers and where are we in the Omicron trajectory that I uh, can say, you know, maybe in a month things will be get better. So I really appreciate having access to the numbers. And um, I have a lot of uh, deeper thoughts about that because as you said, our numbers are not accurate. Like the death counts are an undercount. We know that particularly early on they're an undercount. Um, they're not reliable in, in, a, in perfectly reliable, but at the same time, um, they also, they don't encapsulate the whole story. They only encapsulate like a very flat, like numeric picture of, you know, mm -hmm. that, that death represents somebody's life and everybody around them is grieving and that whole community is grieving. And so how, what does it mean when we say that we're almost at a million deaths in the United States? Like, it seems like a very flat number, but I don't think we've processed exactly all of it. And I'm lucky that, you know, I've had family members die, but nobody in my immediate vicinity. So the way that I'm grieving is different than other people are grieving. But, you know, we, we need to recognize that there's a grief and a trauma in that, that, you know, the numbers can show just how bad it is, but it's also incomplete. So, you know, just to follow up on that, because um, most people look at those numbers, if they're still looking at them at all, and maybe they mention them to somebody who's, you know, close and, um, you know, and that's the end of it. It it lingers in them. Maybe they're tracking it day by day. But for you, that was a, that, that 
brought forward a need to create. And and so I wanted to, I guess my question is what makes you what makes you need to process it in that way or what gives you the ability to go beyond because it's it, to me it's a really striking and important and we'll talk about the work itself in a second but it's a really striking and important um sort of subset of people out there who have to make sense of this disaster by making something else yeah and i think i'm definitely in that category um i you know i think back to what i said originally about kind of my one of my the memories of being in legoland and just how far divorced we were from the scientific guidance and just there's, it feels very frustrating as an individual who knows that there's a better way, but knowing that this is a societal problem and I can't solve it. And I have frustration, I have anxiety. And when I have anxiety, I turn to knitting and craft, uh, sewing, weaving, all, uh, kind of a little bit of everything. And so for me, being able to make something physical really helps me process things. Um, so it was just really natural for me to turn to like, I'm really anxious and frustrated and grieving about COVID. And I don't know how to deal with that. I don't know how to sit with this. And for me, who works in science, who works in data, who knits and, and weaves, you know, it just a data visualization was just very natural for me to, to work through that. Do you think people would be able to come to closer um, you know, come to grips maybe with the enormity of this disaster if there were more visualizations out there beyond the, the curves or the just the flat statistics. I've been really thinking about this and the memorial culture around disaster is um, important. It will be around COVID, but frankly, for complicated reasons, um, the memorial culture around COVID has been really diffuse and dispersed and and there were the flags that were, you know, put in Washington for a brief time around September 11 last year. But um, I don't think we've settled yet on what the visual representation of the disaster should be. No. And I, I you know, you're, you're making me reflect because I, I agree because we we haven't collectively come together and processed all this. So it's up to individuals. And I really think that it's important that we figure out ways to recognize it and whatever way works for you. I think it's just really important for me. It was yarn and visualization, but I'm, I'm thinking back about the AIDS quilt and just that giant piece that we had as, I mean, for all that we didn't really well respond to the AIDS pandemic. Um, we at least had something as a nation to hold on to that encapsulated not just the scope, but also the individual people's lives who were lost during that pandemic. So let's talk about, just to remind people quickly, uh, you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Kristen Briney today. So let's talk about what you were making throughout 2020 mm -hmm. and, and the actual way that you've been representing the scale of the pandemic through textiles. Yeah, so I think early in 2020, I was just knitting normally, um, but that changed because I got COVID myself. Um, so... Um, I have that. I'm I'm a parent of young children. I've had that dilemma of do I send my children to daycare and risk getting COVID or do I keep working and keep making money? And that uh, <laughs> didn't work out well for us. So we got uh, COVID around Thanksgiving of 2020. Um, so I just had all these feelings to process. And so I made, it's hanging above me in my office wall here. This is get the right arm here pointing. Mm -hmm. This is the visualization in question. So I created the visualization um, of US COVID fatalities in 2020. And it's uh, represented every hexagon on there is a day. And it is from January 1st to January or to December 31st of that year. And it was really nice. I worked on that at the beginning of 2021 for several months. It took me about three months to make it. And then I've just been kind of knitting and doing other things because it's it's helpful to do that. But also I want to work on other things just 
for fun and not heavy uh, content. Um, but I came around at the end of the year again and started thinking, you know, originally I was like, oh, I'll make a, a visualization of vaccinations in 20 for 2021 data. Won't that be great? Everybody's going to get vaccinated. Ha ha ha. Uh, no, that didn't happen. And so I've started the visualization uh, last month for the 2021 data, and I'm currently working on that. It's going to take me about three months start to finish to make that. And it's actually going to be probably, it's, it's just as bad as the 2020 data. The, so it's composed of hexagons, and then the colors actually correspond to, they have numerical equivalents, right? Yes. So I, I have a little bits here. I haven't sewn them together yet. So this is one hexagon. The darkest red is over a thousand deaths per day. So this little hexagon represents a thousand people or more, which is depressing. Um, so we can see over here in January, we had no deaths in the US or no deaths attributed to COVID. Uh, I think that's an important thing to point out. And then it really goes up. The light pink is one to 10. The dark pink is uh, 10 to 100. And then it goes between 100 between 100 and 1,000 is red, and between over 1,000 is the dark red. And so the 20, I just downloaded the data from the CDC because it takes a little while for it to propagate. So I like to come into February and download the data to make sure it's complete for the end of the year. And it's about equal with days between 100 and 999 deaths and over 1,000 deaths. So it's like 180 days in each for um, 2021's data. And there's actually... <laughs> I'm going to have a little data visualization aside because one of the things uh, about visualizing COVID is trying to figure out how to responsibly visualize it so a layperson can understand. So I feel like I didn't do best practice because I've uh, visualized, every, visualized everything on a logarithmic scale, which is hard for somebody to understand if you don't regularly view visualizations on a logarithmic scale. But I literally he could not find that many colors of coordinating yarn. So I picked five colors <laughs> um, and I chose a logarithmic scale, but I wish I had been able to show a little bit more detail, a little bit new, more nuance, but I didn't think it would be quite so bad as what it ended up being. Well, and even I wanted to ask you about that decision to, um, to have 1000 be the darkest. Is that something, and I'm just, I'm looking over your shoulder here and I can see that you moved through many colors before you got to the dark um and then it recedes back to the darker red but not the darkest and then there's these two waves that come in mm -hmm. um towards the end of that part of the mm -hmm. narrative of the of the textile how do you feel about that 1000 i mean had you wished is the wrong question but if have you thought about what it would have been to have a 2000 and we've been consistently over 2000 in the united states at multiple points yeah, and one of the things I was thinking about for this year's visualization was trying to break it apart um, and showing a little bit more nuance, but I actually think I'm going to hang the 2021 data literally right below the 2020 data so they're connected. Um, and I wish I had more nuance, but at the same time, it's heartbreaking to yeah. just even over a thousand people a day in the U.S. died. It, at some point at that scale, the nuance stops mattering because the scale itself is so staggeringly awful. Um, yeah. Yeah. We just had the, the, the Super Bowl in LA and somebody was talking about how the, the number of people at the Super Bowl was basically equivalent to how many people in the U.S. died in January. And that's heartbreaking because uh, it's heartbreaking, particularly because we know how to prevent COVID. We just haven't done it. That's the most heartbreaking thing about it. like it's not going to prevent all deaths, but we can prevent a lot of those deaths with science-based mitigation. That's the part that really gets me. I wonder, as you were working on it and the vaccine became available, did you expect? I mean, there's a there's a time of processing that goes on for you, and so I wonder, as you're making this, are you expecting? things. So you're expecting to be able to put certain kinds of colors away. I asked this in the context of the vaccine, for example. Oh, yeah, definitely. I was I was going to make a vaccination visualization and I was going to make it blue and it was going to be really happy. And then I got to the end of last year and just no, because the story hasn't changed really, even with vaccinations. So, you know, I would love to be able to choose different colors. And I specifically chose red because it's bloody. Um, but I think part of the, 
why it's so brutal is because you just, you can't not show it. You still have to show how bad it's been. There's a, um, another textile artist who I've had on COVID calls, Heather Schulte, and she's been doing a project called Stitching the Situation. And um, hers are also have a, um, there's a relationship between colors and pattern that she uses based on um, number of, of deaths. And she also has been stitching faces in and natural scenes and other kinds of things. So she's, um, I, I think there's, Actually, I'm really glad to talk to you today because uh, to see how other textile artists are working is really important and to think about the choices that they make. One thing that she emphasized in her work is um, the community aspect of it. And you and I were talking about this just a minute ago, that you're part of this online community of, of knitters, textile artists. Um, how have people, I want to ask you about that aspect of how people reacted to what you've been doing. I assume not everybody in the community shares the same concern or politics. Maybe they do. I don't. I don't know. what. How have people reacted to this work? Um, I think people have been interested in it. Um, it's been a little hard, I would say, because I haven't really been able to show it to people because people are on campus right now, but nobody's coming into my office. <laughs> so it's been like, I would like to show it to everybody, but um, that hasn't really been possible. But I think people are really, they, they respond in a way that they're, it's hard to just visualize just the sheer scale. And I think when people look at the visualization, I think one of the things that I've most noticed in how they respond is just how big of a scale we're talking about and how devastating it is. Um, and I think that's one of the things that I, I felt when I created it and I see people responding to it in that. So I, I, you know, I love the idea of being able to show like faces and words as part of this, but I also think um, for my visualization, part of the, of why it's so difficult is it just shows the numbers. It just shows how bad it is. And we have to grapple with that. We have to work through that. Just a quick reminder to folks that you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking to Kristen Briney today. And, um, let me ask you about endurance. And this is partially a question for myself. I've been doing COVID calls now for almost two years. And at many different junctures, people have said, um, hey, when are you going to stop doing that? Or they don't quite put it that way. They say, how long do you plan to keep doing that? Um, and I had initially planned to just do 100 of these discussions and assumed that by the fall of 2020, things would have, that the pandemic would still be around, but it would have been a different situation by then. And then I thought, as you, I thought that um, my colors would go from red to white um, when the, when the, um, vaccine was broadly available, but then of course it's not broadly available around the world and it's uptake in the United States is depressingly low. So I've kept going. And I just say that as a, as a prelude to ask you this question about endurance as well. It, it, and you know, there's a huge discourse right now about the end of the pandemic and what that will mean. And I can see where it begins on your textile because it's white. I, I don't know if you'll be able to make a a textile that is white on the other side? I, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know at this point. Like, I know that it will end because other pandemics have ended, but I don't know. We don't know what it's going to look like. We just kind of go forward. I think one of the things that has highlighted to me in the pandemic is it was just ups and downs. Um, January in particular was rough. So I have two small children. I don't know if I know any parents who have their children in childcare that didn't have childcare interrupted in January. Um, so when I think about endurance, it's 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 complicated because like I just hit the wall in January. Like I can't do it. Like we had our daycare closed. Like my daughter was exposed, but we didn't know if she had uh, COVID. We had to get her a PCR test. And what do we do with my son? There's a protocol, but it's not yeah. clear like where we fit in the protocol. It's just, it's too much for a brain to handle. And so I think we just do the best we can and have grace <laughs> for ourselves and feel our feelings. And one of the things I've been trying, we tend to think of science is like we, we, it's all brain, it's no emotions, but that is just not realistic. We have to feel these emotions. We have to process them because that's part of who we are as humans. Um, and that's something that, you know, 
scientist. I like I've had to kind of readjust over the course of the, the pandemic. So I can't say like, oh, endurance. Like, no, no, <laughs> we are living through a pandemic. It's okay if things are not okay. And if we, we don't endure and we have to take a break. Um, yeah. So coming out of uh, last month in particular, it's like, oh, oh, we'll just do things that are soothing, take it easy, try to get what we get done, done, and it'll be okay. Do you find that that fatigue actually affects the the craft for you? Does it affect your eyesight? Does it affect your dexterity in, in some ways? And I, I ask that with great respect um, because a lot of people struggling um, exactly as you described through Omicron with schools that want to be open and kids that want to be with other kids. I mean, that's just one yeah. slice of it. But I know when I'm under um, stress and anxiety, you know, my eyes hurt now as I get older. <laughs> uh, you know, that would affect me if I was trying to to do what you're doing. Do you, do you have those kind of physical manifestations that impact the craft? Uh, not really. I mean, I've been knitting for two, wow, 20 years now. Wow. Um, I, when I'm knitting, like I could be knitting right now and looking at you and just going. Um, so Does your it heart rate really... come down? So <laughs> I'm a biology librarian. So I so I'm asking you this. these personal questions. <laughs> you don't have to answer them. No, I'm just really no, curious as a therapeutic, how it works. Yes. So I actually looked this up because I was curious as well. And so there's some research that indicates that like, yes, knitting can do that. But like, I don't, I have yet to find a study. It doesn't mean it's not out there that like somebody put a blood pressure cuff on a knitter and like <laughs> followed what their blood pressure was. But you know, there's, there's evidence like that you paper. can, I would read that paper. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'd be very interested in that research, but there's evidence that you kind of get in this like meditative state when you knit. Um, and that does lower your blood pressure and your heart rate. It's like doing yoga or meditating, or some people do it when they, they run, they kind of get in that zone. Um, so I think not always, but it's possible uh, to kind of get in that state. But you know, for me, it's, it's, not, it's not black or white. It's, uh, it can be like, I don't have, everything's overwhelming and I don't have the energy to knit versus, I am stressed and I have to knit. So it kind of, it just comes and flow, uh, goes, especially with the ups and downs of the pandemic. So I'm going to bring it back to the first part of our conversation as a person who studies science communication and, um, you know, science and the, the way that data is produced, handled and shared. Um, you know, I think about the visualizations in the papers that I read and then the visualizations, so many of them produced by the media, some of them pretty pretty good. Some of them, uh, to me, a little bit misleading about causes of, of you know, inequality and case rates and things like that. But people have really been trying in these last two years to bring data to life in ways that gets people and pulls them by the collar and says, pay attention to this. And I wonder, is there a space, I wonder what you think about that generally, but also, is there a space for the kind of work that you've been doing with knitting to enter into something we would call the scientific is it already is it already exist and people you've been using sort of artistic interventions to visualize things like climate change for example or the pandemic oh uh where do i start with this so i think that it's really good that we've been getting more covid visualizations because i think the picture's worth a thousand words as the old saying goes so being able to see the data visually can help people process but at the same time we have to be really careful with how we visualize data i mentioned earlier about visualizing this data on a logarithmic scale and how if i was actually making a chart i wouldn't do that because that's not responsible so we have to be extra careful with something so important as covid to do that responsibly but i'm glad to see a lot of people trying to do things accurately. Um, and one of the things that we have to think about is, is how good are we as uh, visualization creators in creating visuals that are accurate, are going to be interpreted correctly, and then also as uh, visualization consumers, making sure that we are asking questions saying, you know, is this actually plotting the data correctly is, are they trying to manipulate me into something? So it, it's on both sides a little bit. Um, but I, I think for me that visualizations, I, I go to the LA County COVID uh, dashboard every week and I follow the charts and it's really important for me. Um, as for, for art in this space, I think that 
we we tend to think of uh, visualizations as just just the numbers and it's facts. Um, and you know, with art in general, even if it's data art, it it kind of pushes the boundaries a little bit. You mentioned climate change, and I've definitely seen somebody who knit a climate change sweater. It was amazing, and so it one of the the, the top is blue and the bottom was red and mm. just turns it on its end and makes you think and interact with that in a different way. So I definitely think that there's room, maybe not like, yes, it can be fact-based, but that's not the point. Like, yes, we want it to be fact-based, but we also want to engage with that information in a different way and to have people take a step back and think and really process it and have those conversations about it, just like we're having here. Yeah. I, Another aspect of it that's really important and impressive to me, and thank you for that um, discussion of that, is the um, the fact that it is made by hands, and and so are the the graphical, um, you know, something that appears in the New York Times or it appears in Nature. It's made by hands also with the the technology as an interlocutor um, there. But I feel like we don't know enough about those people, and it's not because I want to interrogate them and know if they believe in science or they don't believe in this or that, it's more, I, I wonder what you think about this, you know, how it changes the way we think about data and science more generally, if we knew more about the people who are producing the representations. I mean, you and I are having this, I, I think, you know, conversation where you're really telling us all a lot about your yourself and your values and your stresses and your concerns. And so when we see the visualization of it, good, it means something different. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And and maybe that's just how we view visualization in our society that we just like it's facts, it's data, and this is or it's AI somehow now yes. it's not even human anymore, which is of course not not right. But. It's all people. It's all people behind everything. And so one of the things that we have to think about, Alberto Cairo has written a really nice book about this, about how visualizations lie, um, and how we need to start being more. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? So I have long COVID and one of the things I have is word loss, which has been fun. So I'm like trying to search for a word. I can't think of what the word is I'm looking for. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? I, I don't know. Uh, so trying to interrogate these visualizations and ask who made them and why uh, they visualized this uh, thing and what choices they made. And we're not... As a society, we don't always do that. We're not trained to do that. We don't think about mm -hmm. doing that. And we need to grow into a place where we start uh, thinking about that more. We should probably wrap up soon. And, and I should have said earlier, I'm, I'm sorry you had COVID and I'm glad you recovered. And I'm sorry yeah. that you've been suffering with long COVID. And you're not the first guest it's I've had who said, <laughs> you know, at some point I, I might get tired and we need to, you know, kind of. Yeah, yeah. And I'm actually really grateful that I have had a mild case of long COVID, uh, but I could deal without the word loss. <laughs> it's gotten a lot better, but everyone's I'm like, what is that word? Come on, what's that word, brain? <laughs> yeah, um, I did want to, you know, one more, maybe if we have time, one more quick question just about the materiality of things. And, and I want to ask you about your yarn. Like, what do you know about it? Ooh, well, that could be a whole <laughs> talk. Um, like the yarn I'm using for this visualization or yarn in general. Um, ooh, there's a there's a whole like we could get into sheep breeds and the okay. way that different sheep have different structure of their their wool and the different crinkle and the different lengths and that affects the yarn and its properties for how and then how that wool is then spun into the yarn to make it either like really robust and tough or lofty and warm so it encapsulates air. Um, I literally used for my visualization, this is just very inexpensive yarn that I could get in a lot of colors and try them out. Um, it's used for ferrile, which is multicolor knitting. Um, so you're usually using uh, interlocking colors to do designs. Um, I've, I've spun my own yarn. That's a really fun tactile mm. and color experience. And it's really nice to just to go through that whole process. Um, you can literally take it from sheep all the way to yarn to sweater if you want, or you can just buy stuff that uh, there's a lot of people who dye yarn for you. You could, you could buy beautiful, beautiful yarn. I mean, there's a, there's a whole, there's a whole world out there of people who love yarn and love making things from yarn. And it's a really, uh, just really, we tend to like to touch things like, oh, what's that made of? Is that mm -hmm. soft? Mm -hmm. um, 
that was not an answer to your question directly because there's just a whole world. Of, no, well, I asked. Yeah, I just asking because I think about you know the the materiality, the making of things, and the final form that things take during this pandemic. Of course, has been influenced by the pandemic. So I, as I was looking at the textile and you were showing the pieces, I'm thinking, um, what you know, what is shepherding like during a pandemic? What is dyeing yarn like during a pandemic? What is buying yarn and the kind of you know uh, shorthands that you know people developed just as you said, you know the fluffy kind or the tougher mm -hmm. kinds, it must all be in flux and in the sort of new period that we've been with in, in the pandemic, people have had to adjust, I'm sure. Yeah. And I think one of the bigger issues with yarn right now has been supply chain and actually getting yarn because a lot of uh, like sheep from around the world, we have some American made yarns where the sheep are not grown, but they're raised locally. And then we don't really have that many textile mills in the United States anymore. So mm. we have a, we don't really create a lot of yarn from wool, even if we have enough sheep. Um, so we really get our yarn from around the world. So when we have, you know, your favorite yarn dyer might not uh, be able to have that yarn that you love in stock because it's just not available. The other thing I realized is I didn't actually show off. I've got a hexagon in progress and I wanted to show off. This is the pin loom. So I actually wove all of those hexagons um, on just this little pin loom and you kind of wrap all your yarn and weave it around and you get a two inch hexagon at the end of it. So I wanted to uh, show that off because it's a little interesting, very simple piece of equipment um, that people may not have seen before. And it's very fun. It's amazing. Did you build that yourself? The no. Okay. Um, there's, there's a number of different pin looms. They, they range from usually the standard one is a four inch square. Um, I've seen them for triangular shawls, which are big, you know, they could be feet wide. Um, there's a woman who specializes in hexagons. So she has a four inch, a two inch, a one inch, and maybe a six inch even, um, mm. of, of different sizes. So there's a little small, uh, corner of the fiber community that likes to knit, uh, or to weave, sorry, I'm a knitter and I don't weave that often, they like to weave on these little small pin looms, just they're fun. You can make little hearts and diamonds and triangles and hexagons. So we should wrap up our conversation. And just the last thing I wanted to ask you, are you making other work while you're also doing the COVID visualization or is it absorbing <laughs> all of your time? Yeah, actually I have, uh, I'm knitting uh, a shawl or this is a cowl right now and it's really squishy and I'm hmm. not sure you can see all the texture. It's, yeah, we can see it. Uh, I think this is alpaca silk, so it's very soft and very warm, and it's going to be really nice, and it's going to go around my neck when I'm done. And this is one uh, I do on Zoom calls whenever I have Zoom meetings at work because I don't have to look at it. Um, and it, it breaks up the monotony of just endless 365 hexagons. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe it's stress relief from what must sometimes be a stressful project of the COVID visualization. Yeah, I don't think the COVID visualization has been stressful. It's just That's that it's, it's a big project because yeah. I think it's eight minutes to weave a hexagon and then maybe three or four minutes to uh, join a hexagon to the larger visualization. So it takes me three months. It's a three-month project. It's, it's a lot of time. Yeah. Well, I would just want to remind everybody you've been listening to COVID calls and you can usually catch COVID calls at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Today was a special COVID calls at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And I want to thank my guest, Kristen Briney, for what was, a, to me, a really fascinating conversation, sort of in two parts about, um, about science and data and your work as a librarian. And then we merged that with your, your textile production side. Um, thanks for sharing this work. And I hope we can get a chance to see the finished product for the next, next round of it at some point. Yeah, give me a couple of months and I'll, I'll be done. And then eventually I'll get it hung on the wall behind me next to the other one. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.